Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 373 of Forgotten Classics, where it's getting pretty exciting at the House of a Thousand Candles by Meredith Nicholson. And we will talk about more of that later. First, the podcast highlight. I spoke not that long ago about the Close Reads podcast, where they will closely read different books. And this uh, podcast has proven so prolific that they are doing a lot of spinoff podcasts. In essence, they're forming their own podcast network. Now, if you have looked at the Close Reads podcast, I believe all these things are going to be published in that podcast feed. But they are also having their own spinoff podcast feed. So they've got already up is one called The Plays the Thing, where they have begun talking about King Lear. And I very much enjoyed the first episode. There's one that's starting, I think, in a week or two called The Daily Poem. And it sounds like it's going to be just what the title says, a poem read daily with some commentary, possibly, but it will be pretty short. And if the poem's really short, they'll read it twice. There used to be a daily poetry podcast a long time ago, and my goodness, I think they did about a thousand episodes and finally stopped publishing new ones because they'd gone through all the poems they wanted to, sometimes twice. But I really enjoyed it. They didn't have commentary on that one, and I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what they say about the poems that they read on this. When I was looking at the homepage, it looks like they have plans for one that might be about movies and maybe another one, and I can't remember that. Most of these things seem to be aimed at providing the needs of homeschoolers, which totally on board, that's fine. But everybody else like us who just wants to listen for themselves is going to get a lot out of it because, you know, it's for educating anyone who wants to listen. If that's the kind of thing you're interested in, These people have got it going on, so you probably should check out the Close Reads podcast. Now, The House of a Thousand Candles. Okay, this last set of chapters, I was so into. I loved that Jack went to that Christmas Eve party. We saw the adventurous nature that he has described to us, but we haven't had many chances to see because he's been so busy trying to fulfill the wishes of his grandfather's will by staying in one place and not talking to the people he doesn't want him to talk to and so forth. This time, it was all him. And I like the whole outcome of his conversation with Marion. She does care. She is interested in his welfare. And he pulled it off. Only to, at the end of what we were listening to, tell Sister Teresa everything. Well, at least that he went. As he said, he's no good at explanations. So I really did enjoy that too. He's honest. He's not worried about the money. He wants to honor what his grandfather wanted him to do. And that's it. And I like that part of his character also. I really enjoyed too the... um, the Justice League, or what would you call it? I don't know. But the fact that these four guys all come together. So there's Bates, who's now sworn his allegiance to them. There's Larry, who's on the lamb from the law and also interested in a good adventure now that he's there. There is Stoddard, the clergyman, who's young enough to be up for a good adventure and a bit of a fight. 
And of course, Jack, who's already been trading shots in underground passages with people. So why not keep it going? <laughs> I just find all this really fun. And then the whole uh, second conversation with Sister Teresa, where she tells more about Pickering and how dastardly he is. He's suing them. He's accusing her of changing Marion's affections. When we already know Marion wouldn't like that guy, there's no way. And so much of this happening on Christmas, this was all in two days time period, all this activity. I love the way Christmas is just, you know, so much adventuring. And Sister Teresa at one point said, oh, I'm sorry to do this on Christmas. And I thought, oh, right, I forgot. <laughs> Not one really mention of Christmas except for that Christmas Eve party. Everybody's too busy with everything that's going on. Anyway, I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am because it's just going to stay action-packed which is going to start up as soon as we dive in. Let's go. Chapter 21. Pickering Serves Notice The next morning, Bates placed a letter, postmarked Cincinnati, at my plate. I opened and read it aloud to Larry. On board the Heloise, December 25, 1901. John Glenarm, Esquire, Glenarm House, Annandale, Wabana County, Indiana. Dear Sir, I have just learned from what I believe to be a trustworthy source that you have already violated the terms of the agreement under which you entered into residence on the property near Annandale, known as Glenarm House. The provisions of the will of John Marshall Glenarm are plain and unequivocal, as you undoubtedly understood when you accepted them, and your absence, not only from the estate itself, but from Wabana County, violates beyond question your right to inherit." I, as executor, therefore demand that you at once vacate said property, leaving it in as good condition as when received by you. Very truly yours, Arthur Pickering, executor of the estate of John Marshall Glenarm. Very truly the devils, growled Larry, snapping his cigarette case viciously. How did he find out? I asked lamely, but my heart sank like lead. Had Marion Devereux told him? How else could he know? Probably from the stars. The whole universe undoubtedly saw you skipping off to meet your lady love. Bah, these women! Tut! They don't all marry the sons of brewers, I retorted. You assured me once, while your affair with that Irish girl was on, that the short upper lip made heaven seem possible, but unnecessary. Then the next thing I knew, she had shaken you for the bloated masher. Take that for your impertinence. But perhaps it was Bates? I did not wait for an answer. I was not in a mood for reflection or nice distinctions. The man came in just then with a fresh plate of toast. Bates, Pickering has learned that I was away from the house on the night of the attack, and I'm ordered off for having broken my agreement to stay here. How do you suppose he heard of it so promptly? From Morgan, quite possibly. I have a letter from Mr. Pickering myself this morning. Just a moment, sir. He placed before me a note bearing the same date as my own. It was a sharp rebuke of Bates for his failure to report my absence and he was ordered to prepare to leave on the 1st of February. Close your accounts at the shopkeeper's, and I will audit your bills upon my arrival. The tone was peremptory and contemptuous. Bates had failed to satisfy Pickering, and was flung off like a smoked-out cigar. How much did he allow you for expenses, Bates? He met my gaze imperturbably. He paid me fifty dollars a month as wages, sir, and I was allowed seventy-five for other expenses." "'But you didn't buy English pheasants and champagne on that allowance.' 
He was carrying away the coffee tray, and his eyes wandered to the windows. "'Not quite, sir. You see. But I don't see. It had occurred to me that as Mr. Pickering's allowance wasn't what you might call generous, it was better to augment it. Well, sir, I took the liberty of advancing a trifle, as you may say, to the estate. Your grandfather would not have had you starve, sir.' He left hurriedly, as though to escape from the consequences of his words, and when I came to myself, Larry was gloomily invoking his strange Irish gods. "'Larry Donovan, I've been tempted to kill that fellow a dozen times. This thing is too damned complicated for me. I wish my lamented grandfather had left me something easy. To think of it, that fellow, after my treatment of him, my cursing and abusing him since I came here. Great Scott, man! I've been enjoying his bounty. I've been living on his money.' and all the time he's been trusting in me, just because of his dog-like devotion to my grandfather's memory. Lord, I can't face the fellow again. As I have said before, you're rather lacking at times in perspicacity. Your intelligence is marred by large opaque spots. Now that there's a woman in the case, you're less sane than ever. Bah, these women! And now we've got to go to work. Bah, these women! My own heart caught the words. I was enraged and bitter. No wonder she had been anxious for me to avoid Pickering, after daring me to follow her. We called a council of war for that night, when we might view matters in the light of Pickering's letter. His assuredness in ordering me to leave made prompt and decisive action necessary on my part. I summoned Stoddard to our conference, feeling confident of his friendliness. "'Of course,' said the broad-shouldered chaplain, "'if you could show that your absence was on business of very grave importance, the courts might construe in that you had not really violated the will.' Larry looked at the ceiling and blew rings of smoke languidly. I had not disclosed to either of them the cause of my absence. On such a matter I knew I should get precious little sympathy from Larry, and I had, moreover, a feeling that I could not discuss Marion Devereux with any one. I even shrank from mentioning her name, though it rang like the call of bugles in my blood. She was always before me, the charmed spirit of youth, linked to every foot of the earth, every gleam of the sun, upon the ice-bound lake, every glory of the winter sunset. All the good impulses I had ever stifled were quickened to life by the thought of her. Amid the day's perplexities I started sometimes, thinking I heard her voice, her girlish laughter, or saw her again coming toward me down the stairs, or holding against the light her fan with its golden butterflies. I really knew so little of her. I could associate her with no home, only with that last fling of the autumn upon the lake, the snow-driven woodland, that twilight hour at the organ in the chapel, those stolen moments at the Armstrongs. I resented the pressure of the hour's affairs, and chafed at the necessity for talking of my perplexities with the good friends who were there to help. I wished to be alone, to yield to the sweet mood that the thought of her brought me. The doubt that crept through my mind as to any possibility of connivance between her and Pickering was as vague and fleeting as the shadow of a swallow's wing on a sunny meadow." "'You don't intend fighting the fact of your absence, do you?' demanded Larry, after a long silence. "'Of course not,' I replied quietly. "'Pickering was right on my heels, and my absence was known to his men here. And it would not be square to my grandfather, who never harmed a flea, may his soul rest in blessed peace, to lie about it. They might nail me for perjury, besides.' "'Then the quicker we get ready for a siege, the better. As I understand your attitude, you don't propose to move out until you've found where the siller's hidden.' being a gallant gentleman and of a forgiving nature you want to be sure that the lady who is now entitled to it gets all there is coming to her 
and as you don't trust the executor any further than a true irishman trusts a british prime minister's promise you're going to stand by and watch the bootle counted is that a correct analysis of your intentions that's as near one of my ideas as you're likely to get larry donovan and if he comes with the authorities the sheriff and that sort of thing we must prepare for such an emergency interposed the chaplain so much the worse for the sheriff and the rest of them i declared spoken like a man of spirit and now we'd better stock up at once in case we should be shut off from our source of supplies this is a lonely place here even the school is a remote neighbor better let bates raid the village shops to-morrow i've tried being hungry and i don't care to repeat the experience and larry reached for the tobacco jar i can't imagine i really can't believe began the chaplain that miss Diverell will want to be brought into this estate matter in any way in fact i have heard sister teresa say as much i suppose there's no way of preventing a man from leaving his property to a young woman who has no claim on him who doesn't want anything from him bah these women people don't throw legacies to birds these days of course she'll take it then his eyes widened and met mine in a gaze that reflected the mystification and wonder that struck both of us stoddard turned from the fire suddenly what's that there's someone upstairs larry was already running toward the hall and i heard him springing up the steps like a cat while stoddard and i followed where's bates demanded the chaplain i'll thank you for the answer i replied larry stood at the top of the staircase holding a candle at arm's length in front of him staring about we could hear quite distinctly someone walking on a stairway the sounds were unmistakable just as i had heard them on several previous occasions without ever being able to trace their source the noise ceased suddenly leaving us no hint of its whereabouts i went directly to the rear of the house and found bates putting the dishes away in the pantry where have you been i demanded here sir i have been clearing up the dinner things mr glenarm is there anything the matter sir nothing i joined the others in the library why didn't you tell me this feudal imitation was haunted asked larry in a grieved tone all it needed was a cheerful ghost and now i believe it lacks absolutely nothing i'm increasingly glad i came how often does it walk it's not on a schedule just now it's the wind in the tower probably the wind plays queer pranks up here sometimes you'll have to do better than that glenarm said stoddard it's as still outside as a country graveyard only the slasil and the people of the fairy hills the cheerfulest ghosts in the world said larry you literal saxons can't grasp the idea of course but there was substance enough in our dangers without pursuing shadows certain things were planned that night we determined to exercise every precaution to prevent a surprise from without and we resolved upon a new and systematic sounding of walls and floors taking our clue from the efforts made by morgan and his ally to find hiding places by this process pickering would undoubtedly arrive shortly and we wished to anticipate his movements as far as possible we resolved too upon a day patrol of the grounds and a night guard the suggestion came i believe from stoddard whose interest in my affairs was only equalled by the fertility of his suggestions one of us should remain abroad at night ready to sound the alarm in case of attack bates should take his turn with the rest stoddard insisted on it within two days we were as larry expressed it on a war footing we added a couple of shotguns and several revolvers to my own arsenal and piled the library table with cartridge boxes bates acting as quartermaster brought a couple of wagon loads of provisions stoddard assembled a remarkable collection of heavy sticks he had more confidence in them he said than in gunpowder and moreover he explained 
a priest might not with propriety bear arms. It was a cheerful company of conspirators that now gathered around the big hearth. Larry, always restless, preferred to stand at one side, an elbow on the mantel-shelf, pipe in mouth, and Stoddard sought the biggest chair, and filled it. He and Larry understood each other at once, and Larry's stories, ranging in subject from undergraduate experiences at Dublin to adventures in Africa, and always including endless conflicts with the Irish constabulary, delighted the big boyish clergyman. Often, at someone's suggestion of a new idea, we ran off to explore the house again in search of the key to the Glenarm riddle, and always we came back to the library with that riddle still unsolved. Chapter 22 The Return of Marion Devereux Sister Teresa has left, sir. Bates had been into Annandale to mail some letters, and I was staring out upon the park from the library windows when he entered. Stoddard, having kept watch the night before, was at home asleep, and Larry was off somewhere in the house treasure-hunting. I was feeling decidedly discouraged over our failure to make any progress with our investigations, and Bates's news did not interest me. "'Well, what of it?' I demanded, without turning round. "'Nothing, sir, but Miss Devereux has come back.' "'The devil!' I turned and took a step toward the door. "'I said Miss Devereux.' he replied in a dignified rebuke. She came up this morning, and the sister left at once for Chicago. Sister Teresa depends particularly upon Miss Devereux, so I've heard, sir. Miss Devereux quite takes charge when the sister goes away. A few of the students are staying in school through the holidays. You seem full of information, I remarked, taking another step toward my hat and coat. And I've learned of something else, sir. Well, they all came together, sir. "'Who came, if you please, Bates?' "'Why, the people who've been travelling with Mr. Pickering came back with him, and Miss Devereux came with them from Cincinnati. That's what I learned in the village. And Mr. Pickering is going to stay.' "'Pickering stay?' "'At his cottage on the lake for a while. The reason is he's worn out with his work and wishes quiet. The other people went back to New York in the car.' "'He's opened a summer cottage in midwinter, has he?' I had been blue enough without this news. Marion Devereux had come back to Annandale with Arthur Pickering. My faith in her snapped like a reed at this astounding news. She was now entitled to my grandfather's property, and she had lost no time in returning, as soon as she and Pickering had discussed together at the Armstrongs my flight from Annandale. Her return could have no other meaning than that there was a strong tie between them, and he was now to stay on the ground until I should be dispossessed and her rights established. She had led me to follow her, and my forfeiture had been sealed by that stolen interview at the Armstrong's. It was a black record, and the thought of it angered me against myself and the world. "'Tell Mr. Donovan that I've gone to St. Agatha's,' I said, and I was soon striding toward the school. A sister admitted me. I heard the sound of a piano somewhere in the building, and I consigned the inventor of pianos, to hideous torment, as scales were pursued endlessly up and down the keys. Two girls passing through the hall made a pretext of looking for a book, and came in and exclaimed over their inability to find it, with much suppressed giggling. The piano pounding continued, and I waited for what seemed an interminable time. It was growing dark, and a maid lighted the oil lamps. I took a book from the table. It was The Life of Benvenuto Cellini, and Marion Devereux was written on the flyleaf, by unmistakably the same hand that penned the apology for Olivia's performances. 
I saw in the clear flowing lines of the signature, in their lack of superfluity, her own ease, grace, and charm, and in the deeper stroke with which the X was crossed I felt a challenge, a readiness to abide by consequences once her word was given. Then my own inclination to think well of her angered me. It was only a pretty bit of chirography, and I dropped the book impatiently when I heard her step on the threshold. "'I am sorry to have kept you waiting, Mr. Glenarm, but this is my busy hour.' "'I shall not detain you long. I came,' I hesitated, not knowing why I had come. She took a chair near the open door, and bent forward with an air of attention that was disquieting. She wore black, perhaps to fit her better into the house of a sombre sisterhood. I seemed suddenly to remember her from a time long gone, and the effort of memory threw me off guard. Stoddard had said there were several Olivia Armstrongs. There were certainly many Marion Devereaux's. The silence grew intolerable. She was waiting for me to speak, and I blurted, "'I suppose you have come to take charge of the property.' "'Do you?' she asked. "'And you came back with the executor to facilitate matters. I'm glad to see that you lose no time.' "'Oh,' she said lingeringly, as though she were finding with difficulty the note in which I wished to pitch the conversation. Her calmness was maddening. "'I suppose you thought it unwise to wait for the bluebird when you had beguiled me into breaking a promise, when I was trapped, defeated.' her elbow on the arm of the chair, her hand resting against her cheek, the light rippling goldenly in her hair, her eyes bent upon me inquiringly, mournfully, mournfully as I had seen them, where? Once before. My heart leaped in that moment, with that thought. "'I remember now, the first time!' I exclaimed, more angry than I had ever been before in my life. "'That is quite remarkable,' she said, and nodded her head ironically. "'It was at Cherry's. You were with Pickering.' You dropped your fan, and he picked it up, and you turned toward me for a moment. You were in black that night. It was the unhappiness in your face, in your eyes, that made me remember. I was intent upon the recollection, eager to fix and establish it. You are quite right. It was at Sherry's. I was wearing black then. Many things made me unhappy that night. Her forehead contracted slightly, and she pressed her lips together. I suppose that even then the conspiracy was thoroughly arranged— I said tauntingly, laughing a little, perhaps, and wishing to wound her, to take vengeance upon her. She rose and stood by her chair, one hand resting upon it. I faced her. Her eyes were like violet seas. She spoke very quietly. "'Mr. Glenarm, has it occurred to you that when I talked to you there in the park, when I risked unpleasant gossip in receiving you in a house where you had no possible right to be, that I was counting upon something, foolishly and stupidly, yet counting upon it?' "'You probably thought I was a fool,' I retorted. "'No,' she smiled slightly. "'I thought—I believe I have said this to you before—you were a gentleman. I really did, Mr. Glenarm. I must say it to justify myself. I relied upon your chivalry. I even thought, when I played being Olivia, that you had a sense of honour. But you are not the one, and you haven't the other. I even went so far, after you knew perfectly well who I was— as to try to help you, to give you another chance to prove yourself the man your grandfather wished you to be. And now you come to me in a shocking bad humour. I really think you would like to be insulting, Mr. Glenarm, if you could. But Pickering, you came back with him. He is here, and he's going to stay. And now that the property belongs to you, there is not the slightest reason why we should make any pretense of anything but enmity. When you and Arthur Pickering stand together, I take the other side of the barricade. 
I suppose chivalry would require me to vacate, so that you may enjoy at once the spoils of war. I fancy it would not be very difficult to eliminate you as a factor in the situation, she remarked icily. And I suppose, after the unsuccessful efforts of Mr. Pickering's allies to assassinate me, as a mild form of elimination, one would naturally expect me to sit calmly down and wait to be shot in the back. But you may tell Mr. Pickering that I throw myself upon your mercy. I have no other home than this shell over the way, and I beg to be allowed to remain until, at least, the bluebirds come. I hope it will not embarrass you to deliver the message. I quite sympathize with your reluctance to deliver it yourself, she said. Is this all you came to say? I came to tell you that you could have the house and everything in its hideous walls, I snapped to tell you that my chivalry is enough for some situations, and that I don't intend to fight a woman. I had accepted your own renouncement of the legacy in good part, but now, please believe me, it shall be yours to-morrow. I'll yield possession to you whenever you ask it, but never to Arthur Pickering, as against him and his treasure-hunters and assassins I will hold out for a dozen years. Nobly spoken, Mr. Glenarm. Yours is really an admirable, though somewhat complex, character." "'My character is my own, whatever it is,' I blurted. "'I shouldn't call that a debatable proposition,' she replied, and I was angry to find out how the mirth I had loved in her could suddenly become so hateful. She half turned away, so that I might not see her face. The thought that she should countenance Pickering in any way tore me with jealous rage. "'Mr. Glenarm, you are what I have heard called a quitter, defined in common Americanese as one who quits.' Your blustering here this afternoon can hardly conceal the fact of your failure, your inability to keep a promise. I had hoped you would really be of some help to Sister Teresa. You quite deceived her. She told me as she left today that she thought well of you. She really felt that her fortunes were safe in your hands. But, of course, that is all a matter of past history now. Her tone, changing from cold indifference to the most severe disdain, stung me into self-pity for my stupidity in having sought her. My anger was not against her, but against Pickering, who had, I persuaded myself, always blocked my path. She went on. "'You really amuse me exceedingly. Mr. Pickering is decidedly more than a match for you, Mr. Glenarm, even in humour.' She left me so quickly, so softly, that I stood staring like a fool at the spot where she had been, and then I went gloomily back to Glenarm House, angry, ashamed, and crestfallen." While we were waiting for dinner, I made a clean breast of my acquaintance with her to Larry, omitting nothing, rejoicing even to paint my own conduct as black as possible. You may remember her, I concluded. She was the girl we saw at Sherry's that night we dined there. She was with Pickering, and you noticed her, spoke of her, as she went out. That little girl who seemed so bored, so tired? Bless me! Why, her eyes haunted me for days. Lord, man, do you mean to say— a look of utter scorn came into his face, and he eyed me contemptuously. "'Of course I mean it!' I thundered at him. He took the pipe from his mouth, pressed the tobacco viciously into the bowl, and swore steadily in Gaelic, until I was ready to choke him. "'Stop!' I bawled. "'Do you think that's helping me, and to have you curse in your blackguardly Irish dialect? I wanted a little Anglo-Saxon sympathy, you fool. I didn't mean for you to invoke your infamous gods against the girl.' "'Don't be violent, lad.' "'Violence is reprehensible,' he admonished with maddening sweetness and patience. "'What I was trying to inculcate was rather the fact, borne in upon me through years of acquaintance, that you are, to be bold, my lad, to be bold, a good deal of a damned fool.' The trilling of his R's was like the whirring rise of a flock of quails. 
"'Dinner is served,' announced Bates, and Larry led the way, mockingly chanting an Irish love-song. Chapter 23 The Door of Bewilderment We had established the practice of barring all the gates and doors at nightfall. There was no way of guarding against an attack from the lake, whose frozen surface increased the danger from without, but we counted on our night patrol to prevent a surprise from that quarter. I was well aware that I must prepare to resist the militant arm of the law, which Pickering would no doubt invoke to aid him, but I intended to exhaust the possibilities in searching for the lost treasure before I yielded. Pickering might, if he would, transfer the estate of John Marshall Glenarm to Marion Devereux and make the most he could of that service, but he could not drive me forth until I had satisfied myself of the exact character of my grandfather's fortune. If it had vanished, if Pickering had stolen it and outwitted me in making off with it, that was another matter. The phrase, the door of bewilderment, had never ceased to reiterate itself in my mind. We discussed a thousand explanations of it as we pondered over the scrap of paper I had found in the library, and every book in the house was examined in the search for further clues. The passage between the house and the chapel seemed to fascinate Larry. He held that it must have some particular use, and he devoted his time to exploring it. He came up at noon. It was the twenty-ninth of December, with grimy face and hands and a grin on his face. I had spent my morning in the towers, where it was beastly cold, to no purpose, and was not in a mood for the ready acceptance of new theories. "'I found something,' he said, filling his pipe. "'Not soap, evidently.' "'No, but I'm going to say the last word on the tunnel, and within an hour. Give me a glass of beer and a piece of bread, and we'll go back and see whether we're sold again or not.' "'Let us explore the idea and be done with it. Wait till I tell Stoddard where we're going.' The chaplain was trying the second-floor walls, and I asked him to eat some luncheon and stand guard while Larry and I went to the tunnel. We took with us an iron bar, an axe, and a couple of hammers. Larry went ahead with a lantern. "'You see,' he explained, as we dropped through the trap into the passage, "'I've tried a compass on this tunnel, and find that we've been working on the wrong theory. The passage itself runs a straight line from the house under the gate to the crypt. The ravine is a rough crescent shape, and for a short distance the tunnel touches it. How deep does that ravine average? About thirty feet?' "'Yes, it's shallowest where the house stands.' It drops sharply from there on to the lake. Very good. But the ravine is not all on the Glenarm side of the wall, isn't it? Now, when we get under the wall, I'll show you something. Here we are, said Larry, as the cold air blew in through the hollow posts. Now we're pretty near that sharp curve of the ravine that dips away from the wall. Take that lantern while I get out the compass. What do you think that C on the piece of paper means? Why, chapel, of course. I have measured the distance from the house, the point of departure, we may assume, to the chapel, and three-fourths of it brings us under those beautiful posts. The directions are as plain as daylight. The passage itself is your N.W., as the compass proves, and the ravine cuts close in here. Therefore, our business is to explore the wall on the ravine side. Good, but this is just wall here, earth with a layer of brick and a thin coat of cement. A nice job it must have been to do the work, and it cost the price of a tiger-hunt, I grumbled. "'Take heart, lad, and listen,' and Larry began pounding the wall with a hammer, exactly under the north gatepost. We had sounded everything in and about the house until the process bored me. "'Hurry up and get through with it,' I jerked impatiently, holding the lantern at the level of his head. 
It was sharply cold under the posts, and I was anxious to prove the worthlessness of his idea and be done. Thump, thump. There's a place here that sounds a trifle off key. You try it. I snatched the hammer and repeated his soundings. Thump, thump. There was a space about four feet square in the wall that certainly gave forth a hollow sound. Stand back, exclaimed Larry eagerly. Here goes with the axe. He struck into the wall sharply, and the cement chipped off in rough pieces, disclosing the brick beneath. Larry paused when he had uncovered a foot of the inner layer and examined the surface. They are loose. These bricks are loose, and there's something besides earth behind them. I snatched the hammer and drove hard at the wall. The bricks were set up without mortar, and I plucked them out and rapped with my knuckles on a wooden surface. Even Larry grew excited as we flung out the bricks. Ah, lad, he said, the old gentleman had a way with him. He had a way with him. A brick dropped on his foot, and he howled in pain. Bless the old gentleman's heart. He made it as easy for us as he could. Now for the Glenarm millions. Red money, and all piled up for the ease of counting it. A thousand pounds in every pile. <coughs> Don't be a fool, Larry, I coughed at him, for the brick dust and the smoke of Larry's pipe made breathing difficult. That's all the loose brick. Bring the lantern closer. And we peered through the aperture upon a wooden door, in which strips of iron were deep-set. It was fastened with a padlock, and Larry reached down for the axe. Wait, I called, drawing nearer with the lantern. What's this? The wood of the door was fresh and white, but burned deep on the surface in this order were the words, The Door of Bewilderment. There are dead men inside, I dare say. Here, my lad, it's not for me to loose the family skeletons. And Larry stood aside while I swung the axe and brought it down with a crash on the padlock. It was of no flimsy stuff, and the remaining bricks cramped me, but half a dozen blows broke it off. The house of a thousand ghosts, chanted the irrepressible Larry, as I pushed the door open and crawled through. Whatever the place was, it had a floor, and I set my feet firmly upon it and turned to take the lantern. Hold a bit! he exclaimed, "'Someone's coming!' And bending toward the opening, I heard the sound of steps down the corridor. In a moment Bates ran up, calling my name with more spirit than I imagined possible in him. "'What is it?' I demanded, crawling out into the tunnel. "'It's Mr. Pickering. The sheriff has come with him, sir.' As he spoke, his glance fell upon the broken wall and open door. The light of Larry's lantern struck full upon him. Amazement, and I thought a certain satisfaction— were marked upon his countenance. "'Run along, Jack. I'll be up a little later,' said Larry. "'If the fellow has come in daylight with the sheriff, he isn't dangerous. It's his friends that shoot in the dark that give us the trouble.' I crawled out and stood upright. Bates, staring at the opening, seemed reluctant to leave the spot. "'You seem to have found it, sir,' he said. I thought a little chokingly. His interest in the matter nettled me for my first business was to go above for an interview with the executor, and the value of our discovery was secondary. "'Of course we have found it,' I ejaculated, brushing the dust from my clothes. "'Is Mr. Stoddard in the library?' "'Oh, yes, sir. I left him entertaining the gentleman.' "'Their visit is certainly most inopportune,' said Larry. "'Give them my compliments, and tell them I'll be up as soon as I've articulated the bones of my friend's ancestors.' Bates strode on ahead of me with his lantern, and I left Larry crawling through the new-found door as I hurried toward the house. I knew him well enough to be sure he would not leave the spot until he had found what lay behind the door of bewilderment. 
"'You didn't tell the callers where you expected to find me, did you?' I asked Bates, as he brushed me off in the kitchen. "'No, sir. Mr. Stoddard received the gentleman. He rang the bell for me, and when I went into the library, he was saying, "'Mr. Glenarm is at his studies. Bates,' he says, "'kindly tell Mr. Glenarm that I'm sorry to interrupt him, but won't he please come down? I thought it rather neat, sir, considering his clerical office. I knew you were below somewhere, sir.' The trap-door was open, and I found you easily enough. Bates' eyes were brighter than I had ever seen them. A certain buoyant note gave an entirely new tone to his voice. He walked ahead of me to the library door, threw it open, and stood aside. "'Here you are, Glenarm,' said Stoddard. Pickering and a stranger stood near the fireplace in their overcoats. Pickering advanced and offered his hand, but I turned away from him without taking it. His companion, a burly countryman, stood staring, a paper in his hand. "'The sheriff,' Pickering explained, "'and our business is rather personal.' He glanced at Stoddard, who looked at me. "'Mr. Stoddard will do me the kindness to remain,' I said, and took my stand beside the chaplain. "'Oh,' Pickering ejaculated scornfully, "'I didn't understand that you had established relations with the neighboring clergy. Your taste is improving, Glenarm.' "'Mr. Glenarm is a friend of mine.' remarked Stoddard quietly. "'A very particular friend,' he added. "'I congratulate you both.' I laughed. Pickering was surveying the room as he spoke, and Stoddard suddenly stepped toward him, merely, I think, to draw up a chair for the sheriff, but Pickering, not hearing Stoddard's step on the soft rug until the clergyman was close beside him, started perceptibly and reddened. It was certainly ludicrous, and when Stoddard faced me again he was biting his lip. "'Pardon me,' he murmured. "'Now, gentlemen, will you kindly state your business? My own affairs press me.' Pickering was studying the cartridge-boxes on the library table. The sheriff, too, was viewing the effects with interest, not, I think, unmixed with awe. "'Glenarm, I don't like to invoke the law to eject you from this property, but I am left with no alternative. I can't stay out here indefinitely, and I want to know what I'm to expect.' "'That's a fair question,' I replied. If it were merely a matter of following the terms of the will, I should not hesitate or be here now. But it isn't the will or my grandfather that keeps me. It's the determination to give you all the annoyance possible, to make it hard, and mighty hard, for you to get hold of this house, until I have found out why you are so much interested in it. You always had a grand way in money matters. As I told you before you came out here, it's a poor stake. The assets consist wholly of this land and this house, whose quality you have had an excellent opportunity to test. You have doubtless heard that the country people believe there is money concealed here, but I dare say you have exhausted the possibilities. This is not the first time a rich man has died, leaving precious little behind him. You seem very anxious to get possession of a property that you call a poor stake, I said. A few acres of land, a half-finished house, and an uncertain claim upon a schoolteacher. I had no idea you would understand it, he replied. The fact that a man may be under oath to perform the solemn duties imposed upon him by the law would hardly appeal to you. But I haven't come here to debate this question. When are you going to leave? Not till I'm ready, thanks. Mr. Sheriff, will you serve your writ? he said, and I looked to Stoddard for any hint from him as to what I should do. I believe Mr. Glenarm is quite willing to hear whatever the sheriff has to say to him, said Stoddard. He stepped nearer to me, as though to emphasize the fact that he belonged to my side of the controversy. 
and the sheriff read an order of the Wabana County Circuit Court directing me immediately to deliver the house and grounds into the keeping of the executor of the will of the estate of John Marshall Glenarm. The sheriff rather enjoyed holding the center of the stage, and I listened quietly to the unfamiliar phraseology. Before he had quite finished, I heard a step in the hall, and Larry appeared at the door, pipe in mouth. Pickering turned toward him, frowning, but Larry paid not the slightest attention to the executor, leaning against the door with his usual tranquil unconcern. "'I advise you not to trifle with the law, Glenarm,' said Pickering angrily. "'You have absolutely no right whatever to be here, and these other gentlemen, your guests, I suppose, are equally trespassers under the law.' He stared at Larry, who crossed his legs for greater ease in adjusting his lean frame to the door. "'Well, Mr. Pickering, what is the next step?' asked the sheriff, with an importance that had been increased by the legal phrases he had been reading. "'Mr. Pickering,' said Larry, straightening up and taking the pipe from his mouth, "'I am Mr. Glenarm's counsel. If you will do me the kindness to ask the sheriff to retire for a moment, I should like to say a few words to you that you might prefer to keep between ourselves.' I had usually found it wise to take any cue Larry threw me, and I said, "'Pickering, this is Mr. Donovan, who has every authority to act for me in the matter.' Pickering looked impatiently from one to the other of us. "'You seem to have the guns, the ammunition, and the numbers on your side,' he observed dryly. "'The sheriff may wait within call,' said Larry, and at a word from Pickering the man left the room. "'Now, Mr. Pickering,' Larry spoke slowly, as my friend has explained the case to me, the assets of his grandfather's estate are all accounted for. The land hereabouts, this house, the ten thousand dollars in securities, and a somewhat vague claim against a lady known as Sister Teresa, who conducts St. Agatha's school. Is that correct? I don't ask you to take my word for it, sir, rejoined Pickering hotly. I have filed an inventory of the estate, so far as found, with the proper authorities. Certainly but I merely wish to be sure of my facts for the purpose of this interview, to save me the trouble of going to the records. And, moreover, I am somewhat unfamiliar with your procedure in this country. I am a member, sir, of the Irish Bar. Pardon me, but I repeat my question. I have made oath, that is, I trust, sufficient enough for a member of the Irish Bar. Quite so, Mr. Pickering, said Larry, nodding his head gravely. He was not, to be sure, a presentable member of any bar, for a smudge detracted considerably from the appearance of one side of his face. His clothes were rumpled and covered with black dust, and his hands were black. But I had rarely seen him so calm. He recrossed his legs, peered into the bowl of his pipe for a moment, then asked, as quietly as though he were soliciting an opinion of the weather, "'Will you tell me, Mr. Pickering, whether you yourself are a debtor of John Marshall Glenarm's estate?' Pickering's face grew white, and his eyes stared, and when he tried suddenly to speak, his jaw twitched. The room was so still that the breaking of a blazing log on the andirons was a pleasant relief. We stood, the three of us, with our eyes on Pickering, and in my own case I must say that my heart was pounding my ribs at an uncomfortable speed, for I knew Larry was not sparring for time. The blood rushed into Pickering's face, and he turned toward Larry stormily. "'This is unwarrantable and infamous. My relations with Mr. Glenarm are none of your business. When you remember that, after being deserted by his own flesh and blood, he appealed to me, going so far as to entrust all of his affairs to my care at his death, 
your reflection is an outrageous insult i am not accountable to you or any one else really there's a good deal in all that said larry we don't pretend to any judicial functions we are perfectly willing to submit the whole business and all of my clients acts to the authorities i would give much if i could reproduce some hint of the beauty of that word authorities as it rolled from larry's tongue then in god's name do it you blackguards roared pickering stoddard sitting on a table knocked his heels together gently larry recrossed his legs and blew a cloud of smoke then after a quarter of a minute in which he gazed at the ceiling with his quiet blue eyes he said yes certainly there are always the authorities and as i have a tremendous respect for your american institutions i shall at once act on your suggestion mr pickering the estate is richer than you thought it was it holds or will hold your notes given to the decedent for three hundred and twenty thousand dollars he drew from his pocket a brown envelope walked to where i stood and placed it in my hands at the same time stoddard's big figure grew active and before i realized that pickering had leaped toward the packet the executor was sitting in a chair where the chaplain had thrown him he rallied promptly stuffing his necktie into his waistcoat he even laughed a little <laughs> so much old paper you gentlemen are perfectly welcome to it thank you jerked larry mr glenarm and i had many transactions together and he must have forgotten to destroy those papers quite likely i remarked it is interesting to know that sister teresa wasn't his only debtor pickering stepped to the door and called the sheriff i shall give you until to-morrow morning at nine o'clock to vacate the premises the court understands the situation perfectly these claims are utterly worthless as i am ready to prove perfectly perfectly repeated the sheriff i believe that is all said larry pointing to the door with his pipe the sheriff was regarding him with particular attention what did i understand your name to be he demanded laurence donovan larry replied coolly pickering seemed to notice the name now and his eyes lighted disagreeably i have heard of your friend before he said turning to me i congratulate you on the international reputation of your counsel he's esteemed so highly in ireland that they offer a large reward for his return sheriff i think we have finished our business for to-day he seemed anxious to get the man away and we gave them escort to the outer gate where a horse and buggy were waiting now i'm in for it said larry as i locked the gate we've spiked one of his guns but i've given him a new one to use against myself but come i'll show you the door of bewilderment before i skip <laughs>